Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Deadly bushfires continue to rage in Australia. The environment wasn't always a hot-button political topic, taking politics out of climate change. And rising sea levels threaten Boston's disadvantaged neighborhoods. That's a sample of the environmental stories that are increasingly important to greater Bostonians and millions of Americans. Today, we're kicking off a series of ongoing conversations focused on the environment, addressing these issues and more. Later in the show, cyber sabotage, outdated voting machines, voter suppression, all threats to the security of the 2020 election. In a new report, 20 scholars offer analysis and specific solutions about how to secure a fair election. But first, joining me in the studio for our Environmental Roundtable, three professionals whose work involves researching and articulating a range of environmental issues. Beth Daly, editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. Hello, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Dr. Aaron Ari Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston's Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Bernstein. Great to be here. Glad to have you. And Cabell Eames, Legislative Manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Welcome, Cabell. Thanks. All right. I want to start off because it is our inaugural segment on environmental issues. It's something we're going to be doing from now on to just allow our listeners to get a sense of who you are in terms of how you came to focus uh, your attention on environmental issues. So, Cabell, I'll start with you. Sure, yeah. Well, my journey began in 82, actually. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and there was an environmental justice crisis happening there. We, on one side of us was Philip Morris, and on the other was DuPont, and my mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and we couldn't figure out how that had happened, and there were lots of cancers popping up in the neighborhood, and so... In fourth grade, my work started then, actually. I've just been a part of this space for decades long, and um, I'm really happy now to be in this position in Massachusetts to be able to affect change at the legislative sector body, so to speak. Uh, That's Cabell Eames, Legislative Manager at the Better Future Project. Now, Dr. Ari Bernstein, uh, what brought you to the T.H. Chan Center focusing on environmental issues? Uh, it's, it's really pretty simple. I was fortunate enough early in my educational career to learn about climate change from some really wonderful teachers, uh, like Steve Schneider being uh, one of them. And when I got to medical school and I started learning about how to keep people healthy, I thought climate change was probably a real deal for that. At the time, 
almost nobody was thinking about that. Became a pediatrician. Pediatricians are in the business of keeping kids healthy. And at the end of the day, it's hard for me to do that job without dealing with climate change. We can do so much writing prescriptions. We can do so much trying to keep kids out of harm's way. But at the end of the day, you really have to ask yourself what we need to keep children healthy in our communities, in our country, in the world, and, and you need a livable climate. So that's how I got there. Pretty straightforward. Okay. That's my guest, Dr. Ari Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And now to you, Beth Daly. How'd you get here? Okay. So I came in a much different way. I was a reporter at the Boston Globe covering many, many different things. And I was assigned to cover the environment in 1999, I believe. And at the Globe, in journalism, you usually cover something for three years and move on. You just kind of that's what you do. You keep it fresh. But I started covering the environment, and it was just at the point where climate change began really hitting the public consciousness, and the science became much more strong about it. And it seemed to me the most important subject facing, frankly, humanity and environmental issues from fishing to asthma, et cetera, in Boston seemed to be really important. And I also thought a lot of the, the coverage that was coming out was not particularly fair. Uh, there's a lot of um, biases involved. And so I started covering it, and I covered it until I uh, left the Globe in 2013. And I went to Inside Climate News soon after that, after a short stint being an investigative reporter. And um, now I run the conversation where we have an environment desk and trying to expand it right now, actually, to have a specific editor covering climate and health. So... That's there how you I arrived, are. yeah. All right. That's uh, Beth Daly. She is, as she said, editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. So before we dive into our, our first topic, I just want to put something on the table because I think these days sometimes environment is synonymous in some people's mind only with climate change. And I think we should say that when we talk about environmental issues, we're talking air pollution, challenges to biodiversity in our food systems, climate change, of course, rising sea levels, chemical leaks, clean energy, ecological restoration, wildlife conservation, natural disasters. There's any number of, of topic areas that are go under the umbrella of environmental issues. And I just wanted to remind our listeners that we'll be diving into any and probably all of those over the time that we have these conversations, these ongoing conversations. So first, let's talk about, wow, an environmental disaster that's caught all of our attention. It's gotten a global attention, as a matter of fact, and that is the big wildfire, the bush wildfires in Australia. First, let's listen to a news report from the Strait Times describing some of the conditions that led to Australia's devastating bushfires. The bushfires have destroyed more than 10 million acres, with new fires sparked into life almost daily by extremely hot and windy conditions in bushland left tinder dry by three years of drought. For some firefighters like Mick Buchanan, there's a sense of helplessness. It was always going to come one day, and the conditions now are dry everywhere, you know, we've got no chance, no water, nothing, so. So that's from, you know, people on the ground. It's devastating to look at. And I think when I first looked at it, I thought, okay, well, this is sort of similar to what happens in, in California. But then you start hearing some of the really horrible statistics, like a billion animals have been affected. God knows untold numbers of organisms. I mean, from you all who are focused on environmental impact, how do you relate to this? What was your response when you first heard about it, Beth? So, I mean, it, you know, it really is a season in hell, frankly, in Australia right now, brought on by what we just heard. 
I feel very deeply for the people, the ones who have died and the ones who are caught. But I've also really turned my attention to sort of the the long-lasting environmental damage from the organisms that have been affected. I mean, a report came out in Australia that there's like 20 to 100 species that are threatened or endangered that are really impacted by this. Um, their range, their population have been completely impacted. This includes things like the um, long-footed, I'm going to say this wrong, Potoroo, which mm. is sort of a, a rat-like kangaroo found on Kangaroo Island and other places that has really been wiped out. So I don't think we're really going to understand the full effects of what it's done for the habitat and population for a lot of the species until, you know, many years from now. But it's a significant, significant problem. And when we upset that natural environment, wow, Dr. Bernstein, you know, we don't know what can be the long-term damage, really. Uh, yeah, a lot of it is up to our imaginations. I actually was in Australia about a decade ago going around the country talking about conservation and health. I've done a lot of work on the interface of all these species that are getting burned up and what they mean to health. So there's some things we can imagine, but some things we really know. Wildfires like this one can totally change the way ecosystems operate, and that makes all kinds of knock-on effects. The one we tend to see a lot of are infectious diseases, mm. um, both directly from you know, people coming into contact with things they wouldn't otherwise, because as animals move to places where they're safe, is usually where people are <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to protect themselves. But then there's stuff that comes out of the blue that sort of catches us uh, by surprise. In addition to, the, you know, the question you asked Beth is, you know, this is a place where wildfires are normal. There are trees in Australia who have seeds that will only germinate if they're burned in wildfire. I mean, this is not an unusual thing, and it is so far beyond what people are used to. And that creates problems because the culture there is, you know, rest in place. I can beat this, but this is so far beyond what people are used to. And then I think as a pediatrician, as a dad, you know, if you ask a kid to draw a picture of their family, they draw their family and then they draw their home. And kids who are affected by events like this and watch their homes go up on fire, those are lifelong health effects. And so I think about those kids and, and what we need to do to help children, uh, you know, growing up in this world where these kind of events are happening. It, it really is a sort of transformational change about how we need to think about childhood and building resiliency in our children. State of California just this past week announced that they'll give pediatricians the opportunity to screen all children on Medi-Cal, so that essentially the Medicaid for kids. Mm-hmm. That's 40% of the children in California are going to be screened for adverse childhood events as would happen if your house went up in flames, because we know that we can give kids resources to bolster their resiliency. And you can imagine California or the wildfires. It's going to be a big deal. I keep thinking about the Paradise wildfire that is just, you know, devastating to even think about a year later. Now, they say that the, the area that's been destroyed is larger than Denmark, Cavill. It's incredible. And, you know, I hate to say this, but it, for somebody that's been working in the environmental space for many, many years, this science was brought to us. We knew that this was our future if we didn't get carbon out of the air. Back in the 80s, we were called conservationists, and so we all kind of protected our habitats and our resources as a community. And recently, I mean, just in the last two decades, it's become a very political issue, which is very unfortunate for situations like this because it further divides us. And that is where I am deeply concerned because it's evolved to this political football, and that's not what we need right now. We have to come together if we're going to survive this properly. I agree with you. I should just put a footnote on this conversation about the bushfires, and that is they've arrested or have some people in mind who they believe started the fires. And to your point, doctor, there has been 
the practice of some very controlled fires. Most of the people doing those controlled fires are Aborigines. Uh, and this is in the part of the country of Australia where they live in their homeland and they have precious living space. And so this is quite devastating on another cultural level as well. So we're, we're going to see the impact of that too, circling back to what you said about the impact on children and families. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. interesting. The conversation is like in nine countries and we started in Australia. So they've been writing a lot of stories. And this First Nations is a really profound one because it's, you know, ancestral homes. And we've been running some stories about the, that loss, which is very, very profound. Um, just on the talking to our colleagues over there uh, a lot, people expect that there's fires there. It seems much more part of the culture. Like we have California, right? Mm-hmm. But there it's, it feels much more ingrained. I was just there about eight weeks ago and we had a conversation about fire, bizarrely. But this is so profound that I think it's woken up the nation in a way that they're questioning leadership now, right? There seems to be some real strong political action behind it. That may not stop. So I think that's in some ways some encouragement out of this horrible disaster. Yeah, there's a lot of anger against the government. So we haven't heard the last of this for sure. Uh, Let me move on to something that you mentioned in passing, Kabul, about the political nature of conversations about environmental issues, specifically climate change. Uh, So I was fascinated by a couple of stories that we found that looked at just trying to take the politics out of climate change. Is it possible to do that now? Ooh, well, um, <laughs> this is definitely a battle that we did not see coming because it has become a political football and the word keeps evolving as well. And so at this point, you know, I, I don't know. I know that my work is certainly hopeful that it will. And I, and I keep trying being from Virginia and being from an area that's rural and now being in Massachusetts and it's a, it's a different dynamic here. Um, I understand both sides, and I I can speak to both sides. And I think you just have to be very careful because now both sides have become so tribal that the language that we use, we have to be very careful when we talk to each other because it's scary to talk about, first of all, particularly. And then when when you put blame in the mix, people get very defensive and people don't want to digest what you're saying. Meaning human blame, that humans are responsible. Human, right, yeah. Yes. Or, or uh, humans responsible. Mm-hmm. Who's mm-hmm. responsible? Mm-hmm. Not me. You know, what are you talking about? You mm-hmm. know, so you just got to be real careful. And I hope that the people that continue to work in this space don't start pointing fingers and really try to, to come together on how we solve it, because that's what it's going to take. And if we can't come together as communities and work on this issue, we will not survive this issue. And, 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 I, and I don't mean to be a pessimist in any way, but I, I just want to really enforce the fact that we do have to work together. And so dividing us further, making this political does not help. Well, 20 years ago, Dr. Bernstein, everybody was sort of on the same page thinking about, you know, what could be the possible solutions and understanding that we these are issues that we had to address. And then it sort of has devolved, not evolved, but devolved into a kind of separatism. But it seems around the language, actually. So in the areas of the country where people are moving away from using climate change, specifically that wording, there seems to be a more of a consensus. Yeah. Mm. No, there's no question that language matters here. But here's what I know about this, Kelly, which is I've been on this for a long time. And turns out that I have yet to meet a parent who wouldn't do anything, including cut off all their limbs for their child. And when I'm able to connect with parents, I don't care what their politics are about, we need to do more to help your children live a healthy life. 
it changes the conversation. Now, this is my personal experience, but there's research on this too. We know that to depoliticize this issue, we have to, we have to depoliticize this. We have to talk about health. The research is abundantly clear that when we talk about health, when we talk about the reality that our health and our lives, and particularly the lives of our children, are in play here. It's transformational in people's understanding. And we have to have the right messenger. Turns out that one of my jobs uh, through our center is to activate the medical community. We have a major symposium on February 13th, which is co-sponsored, wait mm. for this, by Harvard Medical School, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is arguably one of the most prestigious uh, medical journals. Every single teaching hospital in Boston on making clear that climate is an issue that matters to people like me, our ability to do our jobs. And so we're doing that, one, because there's a tremendous need to educate, but two, because we need people like me to talk about this and say this is an issue for the health of the people we're trying to care for, but it's also an issue for us to be able to do our jobs. And so when you ask, you know, this politicization, absolutely language matters, but we have to start, we have to meet people where they're at. Mm. And where people are at is they get that the environment matters to health. You talk to people around the country, they know the weather's weird, they know that wildfires are bad, they know that air pollution's bad, and you start there and you have a conversation around, I can't write a prescription to fix that. If you want to come to me to get medical care and there's just been a wildfire like in Paradise where the hospital that served that community burnt to the ground, mm. people get that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> And mm -hmm. that's where you have to start. Now, how we go from there is any number of ways, but we need to figure out the pathways to depoliticize it. I think that is clearly through health, among other reasons. Mm -hmm. And we need the people who are best positioned to be the messengers. And so, Beth, I was interested, picking up a little bit on what the doctor has said, that if you meet people where they are, but also use the word resilience in a way of thinking, in a solution-based way of approaching how do we deal with these very real concerns that affect our health, that people are more amenable, they can sort of hear you, that that has worked in many communities, which, by the way, are passing legislation or supporting initiatives and supporting organizations that are doing the work but not necessarily calling it climate change. Yeah, it's future-proofing. <laughs> yeah. It's it's all these, all these yeah. terms that, yeah. we, that we hear so much. And I've covered climate in some way uh, since a long time. And through that long history, there have been weeks of conversations I've had with other journalists, academics, uh, policymakers, and communicators about what do we call it, right? Like it's one thing. We should only call it one thing, and everyone has to agree it's the one thing we call it. And the fact is it's not true. Absolutely, health and climate. As I said, I think that's the most important issue, and I do believe it connects to people. And I believe the ramifications of climate and health are becoming much more obvious every single day of our lives. But whether you call it resilience in Texas or you call it future-proofing in Washington, D.C., I still think you get to the same place, right, because we're acting on something. Now, it doesn't really help politically, I, I would argue, against myself for that one reason. Like, if everyone has a common idea that we all believe in the science, but the fact is we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. So if we're not there yet, let's put that aside until we get there and, and start really working and doing the hard work to actually get ourselves prepared. And I think that is happening more and more, but by using different language. I would have to agree because I'm seeing more and more people. It didn't take Greta Thunberg to wake up some people who are already seeing these things. Maybe they don't express it in the same way or relate if you use certain kinds of languages, but there's definitely been a, even if it's a quiet movement, toward embracing a more I think, focused attention on what are the solutions that we can do right now and long term. 
Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Beth Daly of The Conversation U.S., Dr. Ari Bernstein of the Harvard T.H. Chan School's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, and Cabell Eames of the Better Future Project. We're discussing the latest environmental news you need to know. Uh, let's move on, Beth, to something that you raised about climate change and sea level rise, speaking of climate change, among uh, urban low-income housing and East Boston particularly. I think we've been hearing about the seaport sea level rise. And in my mind, I think about it, sort of those high rises, the luxury buildings or whatever. But we don't realize what's really happening now with the flooding and other big indications that we're already there in some ways. Yeah, I mean, so it's no secret that sea levels are rising in Boston. I think it's one of the top places where, you know... Top 10. Yeah. Top 10, yeah. right. Ocean yeah. is not a bathtub. Sea level rises differently in different places. Um, and we've really focused on the seaport, right? Everything, a very iconic view of Boston. But there's a lot of places in Boston and beyond where you're seeing sea level beginning to. I want to say it's it's happening, like, vastly right now. Um, and will continue to hurt the most vulnerable people. And that's low-income people who can't really move out of harm's way. There's also a lot of elderly and infirm people in these places. I know in East Boston, Ellen Douglas at UMass um, has been working quite hard to identify, you know, where these places are, who these people are, and and really shine a spotlight on something that really separates out the people along the shore into the have and have-nots in some way. And what's becoming increasingly clear, not only in Boston, but in Connecticut, New York, um, a lot of low-income housing was built in places where people mm -hmm. didn't want to go. I'm from, from New York. If you go to the down the Rockaways, you know, down, you know, there's a lot of that. Yeah, certainly second homes are moving in, but there's still a great deal of that kind of housing there. And, and I think it's something that we don't shine a spotlight on and relates directly to health, you know? Some nursing homes, uh, University of South Florida, uh, just mapped where nursing homes are, you know, in, in flood zones or along sea level rise. And it's quite enlightening, so... I'm hearing that people are looking for nature-based solutions. What does that mean, actually, when you talk about trying to address sea level rise? I have no idea, so I'm just curious if you all have any sense of what that means. Well, trees are certainly carbon sinks, mm -hmm. so I think that's probably the, the best nature-based that, that you've got. I don't know if you guys want yes. to add to that, too. Well, but if you kind of, like, close your eyes and think back to the 1600s, what Boston all the way up to New Hampshire looked like. It was a great marsh. It was called the Great Marsh. Still is called the Great Marsh, but there's not much marsh left. And those are incredible buffers for sea level rise. There are also fish nurseries and all these things that provide, a, a, as far as the grass goes, a buffer. It de-escalates the storm surge. And that is largely gone. There's some amazing work being done right now around Plum Island. If you've ever mm. been up to Plum Island, there's just beautiful salt marshes that are just gorgeous to, to walk on along the paths. But they also provide this amazing buffer. But what's been happening is that there's been a lot of um, disintegration of the of the soil there that holds the sea glass and clumps it together to grow. And they've been doing a lot of, not to get too technical, but doing a lot of restoration right now. They're really showing some great progress uh, to really start rebuilding those marshes up that can serve as a first line of defense. So that's that's one natural mm. solution. Boston, like so many cities in the world, is an, I like to think of it as an aquatropolis. I mean, mm. we've got everyone that's in the world's moving to cities and everyone's moving to the coast. And if there's a truism about uh, the environment and health, turns out that if you want to find environmental problems, find the poorest communities. And that's true whether it's, you know, leftovers from big tobacco or it's who's in harm's way from sea level rise. And so we have aquatropolises all over the world, vulnerable to sea level rise. All of the traditional marshes and wetlands, these ecosystems that were designed by nature to essentially absorb 
the natural ebb and flow of the sea. I'm from the Midwest. The Mississippi River Basin was designed. The great, you know, Tigris and Euphrates. All of human history is built around these waterways where nature had designed these floodplains to essentially absorb, buffer the storm surge. And we've built on all that. So what we're trying to do now is undo what we've done. We're trying to replace the landfills and the concrete bunkers and all of this with ecosystems that are plants and animals that work together to essentially buffer us from the risks of sea level rise, storm surge, and and the like. I, I want to raise one more point, if I might, Kelly, which is, you know, sea level rise is a very clear issue in Boston yeah. in some ways. I mean, I'm from the Midwest. When I moved to Boston, I didn't realize it was a coastal city because I'm from Chicago. And <laughs> yeah. Chicago, the whole downtown, you see the lake. But, I mean, you had to work. Yeah. I mean, I saw seagulls flying above. I'm like, where's the ocean? Mm. So, but, you know, we're on... <laughs> <laughs> the coast here. And so sea level rise is pretty clear. But I want to make clear to people, because we talked, we started by talking about the wildfires in Australia. And one of the challenges faced with climate change, as with so many environmental problems, is that there's a real human tendency to believe that it's a problem for somebody somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The wildfires of Australia, we think, are just in Australia. Well, the California wildfires, we talked about those. People need to know, we live in what my colleagues at the School of Public Health call the tailpipe of the United States. The air pollution from those wildfires made people sick in Massachusetts. But, of course, there are forests not just in California. There are more and more wildfires happening in our neighbors to the north in Canada and further east. And we talked about the moving species problem with climate change. So this is unbelievable movement of life towards the poles to get out of the heat, which is happening literally before our eyes, though it's hard to see. The trees that are occupying New England are changing. This has implications for diseases like triple E. It also has implications for where fires occur. And so there's modeling that suggests because of this transition of the forests and the drying of New England, that we're probably going to see more fires right next to us. Now, we've already seen Mm. air pollution in Boston from fires in Canada. That's not a new thing. That's an old thing. But the risks are shifting. And so we need to be clear that this isn't just an Australian problem. It isn't just a California problem. It's an issue for us right here in New England. Sea level rise is another issue. And these are uh, right tied up into climate change. The natural solution, by the way, is, and this is a big deal when it comes to sea level rise, is, you know, people try and conserve nature. Well, it's a real question. What are we conserving? We're conserving 1600 Boston? Mm. Not so sure. Yeah, right. (laughs) But the general idea is we've got to figure out a way to essentially provide ourselves a safe operating space between, you know, things like sea level rise and our built environment. And nature tends to be a pretty good way to do that. Yeah. Cabell, both Beth and uh, Dr. Ari have raised something where you live, which is about environmental justice, Mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of where low-income people are located are near the worst of the worst of some of these environmental impacts. Uh, There's a particular focus in the South because, and I'm, I have people from Louisiana, so I'm very well aware of the connections with the oil and the gas leaks and all of that. But that's just something I wanted you to address as we were talking about this. Yes. Um, with regard to sea level rise and, and those communities that are most impacted. You know, if you're talking about Virginia and um, you're talking about Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, you know, I think Katrina was a huge wake up call for a lot of us in the South as to what was to come if we didn't come together on some of these issues. And, you know, the chemicals and the runoffs, too, kind of also become an issue in drinking water in the South because there are so many plants in those areas that are chemical-based. So there's a real issue there. I know that, you know, anaerobic digesters, I know that that's a really not a sexy word, but it's just the coolest technology to me to create energy through waste. And we have a real issue here in the United States with waste. 
but it's hard to get anaerobic digesters in your neighborhood because, mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I the town I live in, we said no to it. Um, I know Lexington said no. So, but you know, there are places like Saugus where a, a you know a plant shows up, they don't really have a voice. So it's interesting as to how the dynamics change from neighborhood to neighborhood as to what comes in and who listens to whom, right? right. So, um, well, I'm happy to say, actually, that communities are coming together. Faith-based communities are coming together. Environmentalists are coming together. Generations are coming together to work to solve this, this crisis. And environmental justice now has a national voice where in the past we were in the dark and beating our heads up against the wall, trying to figure out how we were able to fight something like DuPont, you know, that was a huge tax break for everyone. So, it, you know, if you came out and said, you know, I, I think that there's something in my water, I, I want to test, you you would get bullied because, you know, they're giving you a tax break. You well, know, how ungrateful are you? Yeah, yeah you're a little bit more understanding about yeah, these so, links. Yeah, yeah so yeah. now that it's become a national mm-hmm. conversation, we're having it, and okay. I, and I'm really I'm really happy about that. I want to end this inaugural segment with uh, something that Prince William is doing, and that I'd love to get your take on. Um, here's the announcement explaining the origin of the name of Prince William's new Earthshot Prize. The Moonshot, a seemingly impossible task that over a single decade became a reality, and along the way united the world. This year, Prince William and the Global Alliance launch the most prestigious environment prize in history, the Earthshot Prize, a decade of action to repair our planet. Now, that's a kind of a goofy announcement, but there's real stuff behind it. And I wondered if you thought having a prize that they want to eventually become equal to the Nobel Prize is important in terms of raising awareness about the range of issues that we've just begun to tap in this conversation. And more importantly, to identify people who are working from a solution-based standpoint. So I think prizes are great. I hope it's more like the X Prize. You know what I mean? I really want practical solutions to practical problems. And I think it can really help. I think their questions need to be really well-defined, not just sort of save the earth. I want, like, how can we how can we make sure there's enough potable water hmm. for everyone, you know, from Ethiopia to Libya? Something very specific, I think, could really work. It's worked for those sort of X Prizes. But it motivates people, and I think that's a good thing. It raises awareness, Dr. Ari. No question. Mm-hmm. I, I would say I'm very happy that they have chosen to make this prize, but I'm, I'm actually even, and forgive me if I sound like a broken record, but I'm telling you how I see it, I'm much happier that our children are talking to us. Mm. The most important thing that's happened about the planet in the past year is the youth climate movement. You know, while the Earth shot is a great idea, I'm listening more to the children, not just here, but around the world, who are calling us to account. And Kevin. Yeah. No, mm. I, I second that. I, I think that, um, you know, it's good to have the children. The nag factor is real. Mm-hmm. You know, they have an impatient nature because they've been watching all the adults. And, you know, what are you doing? And they do have a real fear. I mean, my son, who was 13 years old, said to me, well, we're all going to be dead by 2050 anyway. So why, why am I studying my algebra? So and funny, I, my, I have a 13 year old too. Yeah. It has a similar excuses to I'm getting like, out of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, right. <laughs> and I'm like, do, do, do you know what my like? That's my yeah. life's work. Is this like mm-hmm. you know how how can you say that? But he talks to other kids, and 
he's been a part of the protests himself. And, you know, I mean, but he just doesn't see the, the action. And, and, you know, kids, they don't understand everything's very black and white, right? right? You know, like there's a problem, you fix it. You have a solution, you use it. And it does come down to legislation, particularly with the timeline that we have. And so I welcome the youth movement that has happened. And I think that it's a real game changer. And do you think the the prize will help encourage? And I think the prize will certainly help. We've got Green Labs here in Somerville, so I'm I'm really excited to see what they're going to come up with too. Well, thank you all, and I appreciate this wide ranging conversation. I hope to have many more with you, and certainly we do intend to have the voices of those young people that to whom you referred right here at the table with us in in these ongoing discussions. But I thank you for joining me in this inaugural environmental roundtable. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Kelly. Beth Daly is the editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. Dr. Aaron Bernstein is the interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And Cabell Eames is the legislative manager at the Better Future Project. Coming up, 20 scholars are sounding the alarm about very real threats to voting in America. In a new report, the scholars link outdated and inappropriate voting procedures to widespread harmful impacts on communities and businesses. Under the Radar's political contributor, Aaron O'Brien, is one of the scholars explaining the problems and the -the on-the-ground solutions. O'Brien joins me next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. In 2018, Georgia became the center of the national dialogue on voting rights after Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams narrowly lost to Republican Brian Kemp. Abrams' loss sparked criticisms of the state's election practices, especially around voter suppression. Now, with a major national election upon us, anxiety about the integrity of the U.S.'s electoral system is front and center. A new report from the Scholar Strategy Network outlines the threats undermining the voting in the United States and offers concrete potential reforms. Joining me in the studio to discuss the report and its implications for upcoming elections in Massachusetts is UTR political contributor Aaron O'Brien, one of our mass politics profs and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and one of the 20 contributors to the Scholar Strategy Network report. Welcome back, Aaron. It's great to be here. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. So what prompted the study? Let's start there. Well, really, two things. One, um, Stacey Abrams' organization said, hey, we want the actual data. We want the actual best scholarly information to see how we can make this better. And secondly, this is what the Scholar Strategy Network does. Uh, It's a nonpartisan group that tries to, you know, we always get the ivory tower criticism in academics. And our sole purpose is to try to get the best academic research in user-friendly forms. And so we thought the idea behind this report is people want to know why is turnout so bad in the United States? 
rates? Why is there such inequality in turnout? What can we do about it? And we thought, gosh, we have all these answers in these journals. Let's get it in front of people. Okay. So you mentioned Stacey Abrams, as I did in the opening. Let's listen to her. She filed a lawsuit against the state of Georgia for mismanaging the elections following her narrow defeat for the governorship. And here's what she had to say then. In the coming days, we will be filing a major federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia for the gross mismanagement of this election and to protect future elections from unconstitutional actions. We will channel the work of the past several weeks into a strong legal demand for reform of our election systems in Georgia. And I will not waver in my commitment, a lived commitment, to work across party lines and across divisions to find a common purpose in protecting our democracy. So that was Stacey Abrams announcing her lawsuit. I'm going to get back to what happened to that lawsuit because mm-hmm. she got an answer to the to the filing at the end of last year. And that's the reason why your report is entitled Securing Fair Elections, Challenges to Voting in the United States and Georgia, yes. because there's an emphasis mm-hmm. on Georgia. So now that we've established that, I want to go to some of the major takeaways. Excellent. I was really taken with uh, the cost of voting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think I thought about the cost of voting yeah. in the way that you articulated it having to do with less affluent voters Mm -hmm. and voters of color and what that means. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I think most people don't because it's, you know, a lot of Americans say, hey, you know, the right to vote is there for most people. How come you're not doing it? And what uh, political scientists back up and say, hey, it it is hard to vote in the United States. In many countries, you're automatically registered. We don't do that. Right. And each state has a whole different set of rules that seem to be constantly changing. Some places have early voting. Some places don't. Which days? How many days? Do I register 30 days before? 45 days? You know, all that is a lot of noise to individuals. So what uh, the cost of voting indices, what they do is put forth that um, those costs aren't equally borne out, right? Like one of the great things about an education, the socioeconomic status that comes with an education, is you're better at um, jumping those hurdles. You know how to fight a bureaucracy. You know where to find that information out. You're not working weekends in all likelihood. You have the time to go to the polls. Um, Meaning you can know, take off work and yeah, go. Yeah, mm, yes. exactly. Mm-hmm. Or, I, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of us can, not everyone, but the more affluent you are, you can say, hey, I'm going to be an hour late. I'm going to the polls. Okay, great. Stay an hour later. You can't do that if you're working a low-wage service job. So the cost of voting looks even on paper. But when we really dig into uh, all those hurdles are not equal. The lower income you are and the less affluent you are, the harder it is to to um, jump over those hurdles because you don't have the flexibility in your job. And a lot of times you don't have a car. You've got to take the bus, this, that, and over, and you moved. You know, all that voting becomes an all-day affair. So the cost of voting are not equally borne across individuals and across states. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harder in some states than others, and Georgia is one of those that um, they make it really difficult to cast a legal ballot. So what, the second part of that that was interesting that's under the whole umbrella of cost of voting is the economic consequence for all of us. So we've established that low-income voters now are taking on extra barriers and extra costs, but the economic consequences for the entire electorate is something else because it means something if it's skewed only toward people who can afford to go. Yep. I mean, it's one of those things, inequality and turnout. A lot of times people say, oh, well, they should just turn out whoever the they is, right? Well, that inequality and turnout has real material impact 
for things a lot of people care about, regardless of the politics. Uh, environmental policies are better in states when or pollution indices and environmental policies are better when there's less inequality in voting. We've always, unfortunately, in the United States had inequality in voting at socioeconomic status. But where it gets more narrow, environmental policy looks better. Social welfare policy is more generous. You're more likely to uh, adopt like Medicaid expansion. And you also, businesses tend to have a more stable workforce. So, you know, these are business wants a stable workforce. They want consumers that can actually buy their products. So it's in business interest. We don't usually talk about that. And, you know, the quote you played with Stacey Abrams, I thought was really good because she says, this is nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. You know, environmental, the environmental doesn't ask whether you're a Republican or Democrat when the fires or floods are coming. So something that seems kind of abstract and political, people who say, oh, I don't like politics, mm -hmm. politics. It's terrible. I get it. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I don't because mm -hmm. this is my vocation, but I do understand because it's so ugly. It impacts your material life on things you do care about, access to health care, social welfare benefits, environmental benefits, and business costs are lower. Mm -hmm. Let me circle back to something that is said about that impacts often uh, people with low incomes, and that is being able to register. Mm -hmm. So now in Massachusetts, we have this automatic mm -hmm. registration. Should that not be an improvement? Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, I had the real privilege and luxury of being on your show a couple times. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, oftentimes I say, Massachusetts, you could do so much better. This is actually a good news story. Massachusetts has improved since 2008. Under the election performance index, we were 32nd. Mm -hmm. uh, and as of two 2016, we were ninth. That's a huge jump in a relatively short period. And that's because of the state legislature and the governor. Give credit where credit is due. We've passed automatic voter registration. Though it, well, we have passed it. Mm -hmm. and it's starting to go into effect. We've done online voter um, registration. And we've done limited experiences with early voting. So Massachusetts is definitely moving in the right direction. There is more we can do. But it, it is a good news story. Rarely in politics and policy these days do you get to pat yourself on the back. And Massachusetts should pat themselves on the back. We made it easier for everyone to vote, regardless of your partisanship. And I think most of us, when we think about the democracy we want, we say, you know, let everybody vote and, you know, we'll take the results we get. And Massachusetts is working towards that. So it's a good news story, but it's not perfect. Yes. And, you know, we want it. We want to be best. Yes. And mm -hmm. we should be. Yes. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Aaron O'Brien, one of our mass politics profs and associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She is one of 20 contributors to the Secure Elections Report by the Scholar Strategy Network. And we're discussing the findings of that report. So now obstacles and reforms. That was a big mm -hmm. part of your report. Indeed. This seems so simple, but of course, it it's crazy <laughs> when you think about it. Local elections are held on different dates than federal elections. Yes. You know, I see it on the page <laughs> and I'm like, well, duh, but you don't think about it no. once, you know, because you're in this crazy system. You just accept it. Exactly. <laughs> no. I, this is my job. And I did like three or four years ago, Zoltan, who was the main author uh, on that report, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so 
obvious. <laughs> it's another one of these reforms that everybody should like, right? It's much more efficient. Think of the cost of running these elections, especially here in Massachusetts, where we have police officers at every precinct. You know, there was just all those reports about overtime. I got a solution mm-hmm. <laughs> from an efficiency metric. We've got poll workers that are uh, aging out. It's harder to get new poll workers. So efficiency works. And even your elections means more people turn out. Okay. And it also means we've seen that it cuts into the inequity. Odd year elections, the people who turn out are really white and really affluent uh, on average. Um, Except me. I'm a super voter. Yes. I vote for everything. These are correlations. They are not <laughs> okay. perfect. But okay. you're right. They're yes. just on average. Yes. But yeah. But you're going to see more people like you <laughs> on even years, especially yes. presidential years. And so when uh, there's a top of the ticket race, be it the president or even, you know, a Senate or congressional race, more individuals turn out. And we find that inequality in turnout lessens. It never gets exactly the same. But it's such an easy reform mm-hmm. that saves us money money and makes our elections more sound. Let's do it. How close are we to doing that? I mean, I know that what you the 20 of you are saying in this mm-hmm. report is this is an obvious fix, but is there response? You know, uh, I I can't. Massachusetts has been talked about a lot of policies. To my knowledge, this has not really reached the top of the radar. Mm -hmm. I do know from personal conversations that there is definitely individuals on the city council that are aware of the benefits of this reform. But like all electoral reforms, uh, the people in office won under the existing system. And so why change the rules if you're in office? Um, I guess, except it's actually better for them because more people would be involved and engaged. And, you know, so it's just and and Massachusetts has been so resistant to change and has changed. And so, yeah, I mean, I think especially like places like Ferguson and city councils would look really, really different across the country. Yes. If this was an even years and it's. It's an easy reform. It's a reform that makes sense. Yes. So one of the other things is uh, election systems that are outdated, which are vulnerable to foreign and domestic surveillance. Mm -hmm. Now, this has now been demonstrated by all kinds of reports from Congress, Mm -hmm. from the intelligence community. They've said, Mm -hmm. yes, we were hacked. Certain things were not changed, but they definitely got in Mm -hmm. and they could have. And they're still doing it. So we know this. But it doesn't seem to be moving lots of folks at the top, even in this election year, to make some changes to protect it. You know, to me, it's analogous to, you know, remember the debacle in Florida with the recount? And, oh, everyone said, let's revisit the Electoral College. Let's nothing got done. Very similar here because Republicans, quite frankly, perceived that they came out um, the better with the um, hacks or interference, I should say, that occurred. But, I mean, think of the worst case scenario. It doesn't take much, right? You hack the system or someone, a foreign influence or maybe even domestic, hacks this system and all of a sudden we are not confident in the outcome. Do we do another vote? Do we not do another vote? This is how banana republics operate. We've got enough problems in this country to not go down that road. Ironically, this is a place where less technology is better. Mm. Um, What the report, our report indicates is to have uh, more same old school voting, but to have a paper trail. Mm. In Georgia, one of the issues is once you cast the ballot, it was gone. There was no way to check that your ballot was counted the way it was intended or for poll workers to do so if there was a recount. So, I mean, uh, everything's new phones, new this, new tech. We're actually saying, hey, step back. Uh, You know what's really hard to hack? 
the pen and paper, and I'm simplifying, obviously, of 50 states and all these different counties. That's really hard to do. So what we're advocating there is for a paper trail, as well as we know that the lines tend to be longer and the equipment tends to be, technical word, junkier, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the worst districts. Uh, I'm from Ohio originally. I remember in 2004, it took me about an hour to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I lived in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. That same thing didn't happen down the road in Shaker Heights. That's an anecdotal story, but it's one that fits the data. Oh, I know it fits the data because mm-hmm. in 2008, Beyonce left Europe and came, flew to Ohio mm-hmm. to stand in line with all of the African-Americans who were in the long line uh-huh. because she was supporting Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. She didn't want them to leave yep. the line was that long. Yep. So, I mean, you know, which is and why. And to the earlier conversation, <laughs> if people say, oh, just wait in line. People have jobs. Exactly. The exact people That's in right. line are the ones who are saying, you That's know, right. my boss isn't okay with me, uh, say I'm second shift or third shift, being an hour late for this. That's right. And so it, it, it's not a matter of wanting. It's a matter of allowing, right? That's right. Uh, there's food. you got to feed your family first. Yeah. That's all of it that has to happen. And it's it, it's really important. Now, here's one that's gotten a lot of attention. It circles back to Stacey Abrams and her, her lawsuit, which is about voters being removed from registration lists. Um, What some people don't know, and I was surprised to see how much of this happens, um, if you are considered inactive, you haven't voted in, you know, five or six years or whatever, um, if I was registered, if I'm just a regular person, I would assume I'm still registered. Um, I should be able to go and vote on the seventh time when Mm -hmm. I decide to vote. That, in some states, is not working. They decided, we're just going to purge those people. We've alerted you, allegedly, by mail. Lots of people never got the notification, right. so they arrive to vote and discover that they are not on the, on the, on the uh, registration list. Now, it looks deliberate in some states. Mm-hmm. It looked fairly deliberate in Georgia. Um, this was also an issue in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to this guy. This is Camus Franklin. He's an attorney for pro-Georgia, different from Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Initiative, speaking on the Supreme Court's decision to uphold Ohio's voter purging. I think for Ohio and for other states, particularly in the South, which were looking at the Ohio decision to decide whether or not they would enact similar laws as Ohio when it comes to purging voters from the voter roll. Uh, So in other words, uh, easy ways to get rid of voters. I think this is a decision that they're going to take and run with. So apparently that happened in Georgia. Stacey filed a lawsuit. Federal judge, and we should say, this is an Obama judge, said mm-hmm. did, that she did not feel that it, it was proven to be unconstitutional in the way the purge happened. We should also add that there had been a large number of purge voters and then uh, Brian Kemp, who was formerly Secretary of State when he was running against her, who was in charge of the elections, uh, he and others were forced to put back 22,000 people mm-hmm. who had been wrongly removed from the polls. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of yep. fudginess around this or fudgibleness <laughs> or whatever the word is. Um, respond to that. And what, what do you 20 scholars say should happen here? Well, mm-hmm. I, I, we're, I think we do a good job in the report to say, listen, there we do want accurate voter rolls. Uh, they shouldn't be riddled with people who have passed or have moved out of state. Um, but that it, that buttresses against the very real issue of these purges have been done in places that seem to advantage one party over the other. If these secretaries of state, uh, or not secretaries, but in charge of elections mm-hmm. in Georgia and Ohio, had been pay, were, 
were just crusaders for uh, accurate uh, voter rolls all along, then maybe would feel a little bit differently. But uh, the timing is suspicious at best. So we very much want accurate voter rolls. We push for a really accurate census in here just to count people correctly um, so you can do a better job on those. And so we're we're not someone who – we're not a group or organization that says accuracy doesn't matter in those. But when those purges are so obviously political – it has two effects. One, people get there and can't vote. And two, the very people who have been purged, which in Georgia was found to be, you know, a 13, uh, by 13 percent, I think it was, mm-hmm. African-Americans were overrepresented amongst those purged. Um, when that occurs, that's yet another place where voters who are might be, you know, infrequent voters feel all the more discouraged. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, especially in places like Georgia, the history of the ballot for African-Americans and individuals of color is not a good one. So you're already working on that legacy. You've already worked on that legacy and bothered to show up and vote. And now you've been purged or there's there's provisional ballot. It just turns people off. And so uh, uh, the goal of Scholar Strategy uh, Network with this particular report is how do we get the best election system that allows the most people in the United States to cast a legal ballot. And those purges are not helping. Um, and we should mention that, you know, some of these purges had to do with uh, uh, formerly incarcerated folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we saw the ballot initiative in Florida, which overwhelmingly said, let's give these people back their right to vote. They served their time. We're talking about nonviolent mm-hmm. offenders, only to have the legislature mostly run by Republicans. Yep. This is accurate. I'm not being yep. um, partisan in saying this. Uh intervene and add what is essentially a poll tax, which we're back to the costs of voting yep. when there should not be a cost of voting. And so, even, hmm. you know, voter ID, um, 81 percent of uh, white individuals have immediate access to a driver's license. It's around, I'm forgetting the exact number, but I want to say 52, 53 percent for individual or African-Americans. I mean, that right there, that's something that on paper, get a voter ID. A lot of people think that's not that hard. Well, Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if you've got a gap of 20, 30 points between whites and blacks in terms of easy access, that's another place where the cost of voting goes up, but it doesn't go up evenly. Well, and I can say that in the state of Alabama, they closed all the registration right. sites. So there was yeah. one in the entire state for you could go get an idea yeah. if you didn't drive. So, I mean, this is... You know, I've I done mean, other work. We call it yeah. Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's more clever. Uh, it's not as overt. But the effects, though not the same, uh, are similar. So where does this go? Where where do you hope this goes um, to our representatives, to the mm-hmm. election people? Um, are they paying attention? We are here months away, yeah. months away from a real a potential insecure election. One here in Massachusetts, we're hoping our policymakers continue on the great trend they've been on with automatic voter registration, online voter registration, some early voting, to take seriously that call to let's move our elections to even years. We have enough special elections on top of it. Yes, we do. Yeah, make (laughs) it even years because efficiency and that, that that's good for the polity. Two, this is a report. It's on the scholarsstrategynetwork.org um, fair elections uh, website that if you're just a citizen who wants to know the answers to those questions, why are we – why is the United States relatively bad in turnout? Why is there this inequality in turnout? What can I do? What are the effects? This is – 
easy breezy, user friendly, because um, we want educated voters. We want voters to be able to talk to their friends, to their colleagues and say, hey, this is why that's going on. And let me bring you to the polls. Uh, uh, we take that really seriously for democracy. Um, and third, would really love if policymakers, if this could be a, an impetus to say, these are relatively easy fixes. They're nonpartisan. Let's take it out of Democrat, Republican yelling and say, how do we run better elections? Elections that we're not ashamed of and elections that people participate in. Uh, it's pretty small D democracy, but uh, unfortunately, in this particular period, it seems radical. Um, do you think because we're in a particularly um, sharp or partisan divide that, in fact, this might draw more attention from the public around elections and more people are enthused, even if just coming from their particular place of ideology? Perhaps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I hope so. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't I think sharp is a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if uh, if Republicans can get behind um, even your elections, because of the efficiency argument, great. If Democrats want to get behind it because they like the idea, it, it, it go it you know um, tackles or doesn't tackle, but it, it helps address uh, uh, voter inequality in terms of turnout. Superb. Um, we don't all have to have the same reasons to get there, um, but you know we've got a real concern moving forward of. If we have elections that continue to be so contested and if there are real concerns about – and there have been concerns – but a major hack, a major problem. In 16, most of the interference was understood to be you know, via Facebook and via um, emails, ways Bots to contact you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Not mm -hmm. actually in the ballot box mm -hmm. or in the, you know, the booth. If that gets in the booth, if we're already this sharp – Imagine the reactions to trying to solve this. Our elected leaders seem uh, incapable of not uh, of, of of viewing national problems through any lens but partisan. Yeah. Maybe maybe voters can do better. Um, yeah, you know the, we're. I, I don't want to be Pollyanna, but um, you know we're a pretty young democracy. Uh, there's no reason it has to stick around. And one way we can help assure that it does is if we get more people to turn out, more people to cast a legal ballot, and for people to have confidence in the election process. You might not like the outcomes, but if you have confidence in the process, you're more willing to engage in it versus saying, this is over, we're done. I would hope that um, that people who are running for office would be also focusing on these issues and encourage people, for example, go check to make sure you're not purged because you, if you haven't voted in the last, that's a great you know, point. You know mm -hmm. because that's something they can do as a matter of just trying to get people to the polls. And finally, I would say over in the People's Republic of Cambridge, we've been using paper ballots <laughs> yes. all along. <laughs> and you do rank choice and you're just better I'm, people. I'm just saying. <laughs> We're already on that. But for framing the national audience, we are not using Cambridge. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Aaron O'Brien, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, a member of the Mass Politics Profs blog, and a contributing scholar to the Scholar Strategy Network and a regular contributor at Under the Radar. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and available wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Francisca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman and John Parker. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. 
See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.